Today, I'm going to really be continuing last week's sermon uh, because we, we just didn't have enough time to go through all of Jesus' illustrations, and, and they're so powerful, I want to continue that. So, uh, last week, we, uh, we talked about how uh, the kingdom of heaven calls us to inside-out living. Uh, Jesus knows that uh, there is a risk that we will just try to clean up the outside of our lives, we'll, become, uh, we'll make it our spiritual aspiration to be better rule keepers, uh, and then leave the heart unchanged. And Jesus says, no, that's what the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees do. And so in verse 20 of, of chapter 5 in Matthew, Jesus says, actually, uh, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. I'm calling you to uh, greater integrity, to a higher spiritual calling than what the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious class uh, in Jesus' day, were aspiring to. And so last week, uh, Jesus then began, he gives us six illustrations of this higher calling, this greater righteousness uh, he calls us to. And last week we looked at uh, Anger, that was the first illustration. Jesus says, hey, don't just make it your goal to not kill people. You know, that's not, that's not significant enough. Instead, I, I want you to make it your spiritual goal to pull out of your heart or allow me to pull out of your heart all the stuff that leads to murder, all the anger, all the contempt, all the backbiting, the hatred. I want, we want to pull that all out. I'm calling my people. Uh, the values of my kingdom are uh, not only do you not kill, you don't even go there in your heart with anger. And then he said, as it, as it relates to uh, sexual purity, I don't want you to settle for I'm not going to have an affair. No, I'm calling my people in the kingdom of heaven, the values of the kingdom of heaven, I'm calling my people to not look after a woman and lust after her in your heart. That's the greater righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. And then, as it relates to uh, faithfulness in marriage, he says, I don't want you to make it your goal that if I, get her, if I decide to divorce, I'm going to make sure I give her a certificate of divorce so that she's free to move on with her life. That's not, that's not a God-honoring, sufficiently lofty spiritual goal. Rather, if you're married, you want to... You want to reflect the faithfulness of the Heavenly Father. And so your marriage is for a lifetime. And you let only death, or if the other person is sexually unfaithful, break that. And so we begin, we, last week we began to see that Jesus uh, was being serious when he said, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. The calling of God upon the life of the Christian is a much more uh, a much higher calling, uh, uh, much more of, of a heart calling. You see, the, the goal is God wants our hearts to beat with, like His heart, to where we love the things that God loves on the inside. We hate the things that God hates. We pursue what God would pursue and run away from what God uh, rejects. All right, so, so today I, I want to go ahead and continue on because Jesus gives three more illustrations of, of this principle 
uh, working out in real life, and I find it so challenging. So we are in Matthew chapter 5. Sermon on the Mount, by the way, is found in Matthew's chapters 5, 6, and 7, and we're in this series uh, until Easter, and I know that you're committed to being here in person. That's awesome. Church is meant to be done in person, right? Life's better together, but sometimes uh, you can't be here, and so you can catch up online. We have these sermons both uh, at our website, clearwater.church, and then also you can listen uh, as a podcast. And by the way, the what's online, the video comes from Thursday, the podcasts are from Sunday, and it just happens to always be better by Sunday, right? I just did a little tip, a little tip for you. Also, in your bulletins, I have fill in the blanks so that you can uh, stay focused. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Uh, remember the structure here as Jesus says, you know, you've heard it said, and then he talks about a, a popular religious idea of his time, and then he corrects it. But I say unto you. And, and that reminds us, by the way, that he is the son of God who has the authority to say, but here's how it really is. Here's what God really wants from us. So, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. And uh, that's an amalgamation of a few uh, mosaic laws. Uh, and it's not inaccurate. But here's how it was being applied uh, in Jesus' day. First off, the whole point of that mosaic law was to encourage the people of Israel to be people who uh, kept their word. Do what you say you're going to do, especially if you make an oath to God. You know, you want to be the kind of person who keeps your promises, makes good on your oaths. But actually, what, what was going on is the scribes and Pharisees had, um, they had actually flipped that on, on its head, and they were using oaths, the taking of oaths, to actually wiggle out of having to keep their promises. And what they were doing is they were saying, okay, um, only, only oaths that uh, are, you know, invoke the name of God or certain sacred things are truly binding. Other oaths are not binding. And so they were being kind of sneaky. You could take an oath, and if you, used, if you didn't use just the right formula, then you really weren't on the hook for it. Uh, so Jesus actually, in Matthew chapter 23, a few chapters later, Jesus addresses this arbitrary, uh, inappropriate um, kind of division of, of the significance of oaths. So in verse 16 of chapter 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, that's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, oh, he's bound by his oath. Are you blind fools? For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, nah, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? 
So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. So uh, Jesus is going to correct this um, use of oaths to actually kind of wiggle out of your promises. So you've heard it said, but I say to you, verse 34, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Don't take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Why do people even take oaths? Why, why the impulse to take an oath and make an oath? Well, because we know that most men are liars. Right? And it might be, it might be that, that you are the kind of person who you have to take an oath to try to convince yourself to follow through. Because you don't trust your, yourself. And, and you don't, you don't feel, feel like you have enough integrity in your own heart. So you have to make some big oath. You have to make some great oath. Uh, I swear on my mother's grave or whatever it is to sort of, first off, to motivate yourself to, to follow through. Or it could be that you have a reputation. People won't believe you unless you go above and beyond to try to convince those people that you have uh, failed so often. This time you can really trust me. And Jesus says, look, I want you to be the kind of people who don't require an oath taking in order to follow through on your commitments. Let your yes be yes, your no be no, anything beyond that comes from evil. Right? I, I want my people in the kingdom of heaven, uh, the, the, the people of God, the followers of Jesus Christ, do what they say they're going to do. They follow through on their commitments. And, and look, this can be inconvenient, right? There are times when uh, we make promises, we say we're going to do something, and then later we're like, oh, I wish I hadn't have said that. Uh, so I was thinking about when my kids were young, and kids like certainty, right? So my children were so often trying to get me to make promises. Dad, can we have some ice cream tonight? Sure, I think we can have ice cream. Promise? And <laughs> You know, I, I was usually pretty savvy. I'm like, no, 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 I'm not promising. I'm just saying right now it makes sense to me, yeah. But sometimes I would give them a promise. Yeah, yeah, sure, I promise. Well, and then sometimes it was inconvenient, right? Now, Morgan and Aubrey didn't have some higher, well, they had mommy. I guess they had a higher power, <laughs> you know. There was no higher court, maybe. But, if, uh, but I could have just said, I'm sorry, it's no longer convenient for me, and I'm not going to do what I said I was going to do, and you're just going to have to deal with that. But I wanted to model, I, I felt a, a responsibility to follow through, and so I found myself having to renegotiate often with my children. If I made a promise and then I couldn't fill it, I'd go back, and Aubrey was the hardest negotiator. Aubrey, I know I said ice cream tonight, but I have a meeting, I can't do that. How about we do ice cream the next two nights? And Aubrey would say, three. <laughs> ha! Three nights! 
Uh, she got a lot of cash out of me, too. She, she was crafty. So, but I was trying to, I was trying to model, hey, uh, Jesus Christ calls his people to truthfulness. To, you say you're going to do something, you do it. You honor those commitments. And, and now, look, so look, um, this applies in our family relationships. It applies at work. Um, and actually, I, th- I, I want to caution, don't be too quick to say, yeah, yeah, I'll agree to something. I think be thoughtful, pre-think. You know, your boss says, hey, can you get this done by, you know, next Wednesday? You're like, sure, no problem. Think it through. And if you can't, say, I, I don't know if that's, I don't think that's realistic. And if you can't, then have the kind of integrity where you go back and you say, hey, I know I said I was going to get that done by Wednesday. I don't think I'm going to make it. You know, can we renegotiate? Um, I, I, and why? Why do we do this? We do this because God keeps his commitments, right? God's, when God says yes, it's yes. When he says no, it's no. He does not renege on his promises because some late, in some later date they are inconvenient. God, no word from the Lord ever falls down and he never just says, I'm going to forget about that one because that doesn't work for me anymore. No. God is 100% truthful. When he makes a promise to us, we can take it to the bank. And, and this, you know, what Jesus is calling us to is to be like our Heavenly Father. Have his character. It makes it a whole lot easier for the world to see God when the people of God uh, act like him. Feel challenged? I'm sure we all do. All right, now we get to verse 38, and here Jesus talks about the law of retaliation. And I find this one so challenging. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And that's a quote from the Old Testament. An eye, from the, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a truth. It's, it's part of the Mosaic law. And it had a purpose. This is uh, the law of lex talionis, uh, um, of similar kind. And, and it was um, informed the, the Jewish legal system. And here was its purpose. Number one, it was to um, prevent escalating retaliation. So, uh, you know, hey, you slap me, I'm going to knife you. Uh, you you uh, hit, uh, hurt my donkey, I'm going to burn your house down. And, and this retaliatory escalation, who knows where it stops. And so this was, first off, it was, intent, it was intended to uh, prevent this escalating retali- retaliation. Revenge, right? Escalating revenge. Secondly, it was to ensure um, that, uh, it was to prevent vigilantism. It was to provide the, the Jewish people a way to get satisfaction, to get justice, without having to take matters into their own hands. But by, in Jesus' day, by, G, by the time Jesus came along, the Jews had taken what was intended to inform the legal system of Israel, and they were applying 
it to the inter, their interpersonal relationships. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, and, and so here's what's happening. Hey, you hurt me. I'm going to hurt you back in kind. By the way, it could have a positive as well, right? You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. But it was this, how do I relate to other people? Eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The law of uh, retribution. And by the way, the law of retribution puts me uh, in the position of judge and jury, right? I am responsible for ensuring that nobody gets the upper hand on my life. I settle all my scores, Right? If you, hurt, if you slap me, I'm going to slap you back. If you sue me, I'm going to sue you back. If you fail me, I'm going to fail you. If you lie to me, I'm going to lie. Right? And, and uh, what does that create? What kind of a, what kind of a community dynamic does that, does that create? Well, Jesus is about... His, what he tells his audience is that... This whole law of retribution that the world runs by, uh, that, has, that can be, have no part in his kingdom. The kingdom of heaven does not operate that way, and the citizens of heaven are not to operate that way. So, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. There's the principle. The principle is, do not uh, respond in kind. Do not, do not operate according to the law of retribution in your personal relationships. And then he goes on to give a number of illustrations of what this principle looks like in real life. First illustration. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Uh, by the way, to be slapped on the right cheek most likely means that that person is backhanding you, which is injurious and insulting, especially in the Middle East. Bam. Now, if you're operating according to the principle of retribution, somebody does that to you, what do you do? <laughs> you instantly do that, right? And Jesus is saying, no. Somebody backhands you, you do not retaliate as your instinct is, and as the Jews tell you is okay, no. In the kingdom of heaven, what I'm calling you to do is you turn the other cheek, which means you absorb the injury and the insult, and rather than retaliate, you open yourself up to even greater injury and insult. How many of us act this way naturally? Is this, is this your... Inclination? Is this what's modeled around us in society? Not at all. It, this was, is, it, and this would have been uh, equally as counterintuitive to Jesus' audience. Here's another illustration, for, verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Okay, so somebody's like, uh, I'm taking you to court. I'm suing you. I'm going to try to get your tunic. And, and so when, what does the law of retribution say? You sue me, I'm going to sue you back. And we're going to see who wins. I'm going to try to take more from you than you take from me. And Jesus says, nope. You don't retaliate and sue them. 
you let him have your cloak as well. You open yourself. You, you so reject the, the law of retribution as the way of relating to other people that you actually are willing to open yourself up to even greater loss and injustice. Here's another example, verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And he, who could force you to go a mile? Well, the, the, the Romans occupied Israel, and they were legally allowed, any Roman was allowed to forcibly conscript in the moment a Jew to go up to one mile carrying their stuff. So that was on the law books. If I'm a Roman, I could say, hey, take my bag, I'm tired, and carry it. And you had to go a mile. And, and so what would the law of retribution say? Well, you know, get out of here if you can, hate, hate the, you know, the Roman in your heart, don't go an inch more than, than a mile. And Jesus says, actually, don't retaliate, be willing to go too if necessary, if asked even. And then final, final illustration, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So, if you live according to the law of retribution, uh, I scratch the back of those who scratch my back, you hurt me, I hurt you. Uh, somebody, a beggar, comes and says, hey, could you please help me out? And you're like, well, what are you offering me? Oh, I have nothing to offer, I'm just hoping you'll be gratuitous. The law of retribution says, no, I don't relate to people that way. You know, if you want what I have, you pay for it. I don't just give things for free. You want to borrow something of mine? What do you have in return? Right? And so when we relate to other people according to the law of retribution, um, we don't just give things for free. I, I think we make a mistake if we try to woodenly apply these illustrations to life. Jesus is using these illustrations in order to drive home this point. In the kingdom of heaven, we do not relate to other people according to the law of retribution, which was so ingrained in the culture of his day that these illustrations would have been absolutely shocking to them and would have made strongly the case of what he's trying to say. Um, and, And so I think if we just woodenly apply these... It can be inappropriate. Obviously, when the rest of the Bible informs us. Wisdom informs us. Uh, but the point is very clear. We do not relate to people uh, according to the, the law of retribution. In fact, in the next scriptures, he tells us we relate to people according to the law of love in the kingdom of heaven. Also, um, some people can misapply what Jesus says here to... Um, the state and the government level. And, you know, in Paul in Romans reminds us that God actually commands the state to enact his uh, judgment upon the wicked. And the state is part of God's ordained structure in order to resist evil in the world. Um, so if you're a Christian and in your inter- interpersonal relationships you do not apply the, the principle of retribution, but you're also a judge or you're a police officer, you're in the military, um, and, and that applies differently because you're then functioning on behalf of the state. Just trying to cut off weird places people go with some of these scriptures. So, Christians are never to relate 
to others based on the principle of retribution. How do you relate to people? Maybe there's somebody in your life right now and you're like, I know I'm relating to them on the principle. By the way, when you have hatred in your heart, bitterness in your heart, unresolved conflict, what do you think is going on in your heart? You're, based, you're relating to that person based on the law of retribution. And Jesus says, not in my kingdom. Not, that's not what I'm calling you to. I'm calling you to a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. A righteousness at which it was which eschews this whole concept of relating to people with the principle of retribution. I think an, another thing jumps out to me, and here, Jesus, remember, he said, blessed are the peacemakers. And I, I pointed out last week, that's, it, Jesus is saying, not blessed are you who are at peace, right? Because we can be at peace and, be, and have conflict with people. He's saying, blessed are the peacemakers. You go out and you actively work to pursue peace. Well, in the pursuit of peace, Jesus is telling us we must be willing to absorb more insult, more injury, more inconvenience, more injustice, more loss. Verse 33. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I like how he puts that. You have heard that it was said. In other words, you're, you've heard from your religious leaders that the Bible says, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, first off, that first part, love your neighbor, is uh, from Levit Leviticus chapter 19. So that's biblical. Love your neighbor. Hate your enemy, nowhere is it found in the Bible. It's not in the Old Testament. Uh, that had been an added on by the uh, Jewish religious thinkers over the centuries. And here's how they got there. The way they got there was by defining neighbor. Uh, what, what Jesus is about to say is, um, every person on the planet is your neighbor. Jesus illustrated this with that great parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Um, but here, Jesus is, puts it as a principle. But every person on the planet is your neighbor. And therefore, all humans should be considered inside the circle of care. Who do I have to love? All humans. But the Jews had uh, drawn a much smaller circle. Uh, they had defined a neighbor as being um, fellow Jews who had the same religious beliefs, right? Uh, and we can get around, we can do that. Christians are my neighbors. Uh, you know, my fellow Democrat or my fellow Republican is my neighbor. Uh, those people who have my blood in them. Whatever it is, we, we all like to draw a much narrow circle of care. And then, once we do that, then we are allowed, you know, there are people outside the circle, and at a minimum, I don't have a responsibility to care about them. I certainly don't have to act on their behalf. They're not my neighbor. I have to love my neighbor and those other people who cares. Or we can go so far as to say, uh, not only do I not have to care, they're my enemies, and in Jesus' day, the religious leaders taught 
that there was a category called enemy, and actually God wanted you to hate those people, to desire their downfall, to work toward their downfall. And, and Jesus says, this is absolutely uh, inappropriate, absolutely wrong-headed. But I say to you, but I say to you, let me tell you what God really requires and asks of us. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Boom. Jesus has just redefined neighbor the, the way it was intended to be defined. Love, you, love your neighbor, Leviticus 19, and Jesus says, everyone's your neighbor. All people on the planet are your neighbors. You're required to love everyone. And this whole category of enemy you got to love those people too. Even the person who persecutes you. All right, let's, let's get, think realistically about what that means. So you're at work and you have a coworker. Maybe it's Sally. And Sally, for some reason, uh, has it in for you. You're in Sally's crosshairs. And Sally spends time and energy. She dreams about. She works toward your downfall. She, she makes little comments to other people in the, in the office. Uh, she spreads rumors. She flat out lies. She makes accusations. You know, she smiles to you and then cuts you down. And you, you know this. She's actively working to harm me. She's trying to step over me to get ahead and whatever. It's, somehow she, has, she is going to take personal joy and satisfaction and she's not going to rest until, uh, until she gets what she wants and it's at my expense. She's persecuting you. She's your persecutor. She is your Thorn in the in, in your she's a thorn in your side. She's an irritant. Certainly, Sally is outside your circle of care, right? Come on, she's an enemy. She's actively working to harm me. I, 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 Jesus can't seriously call me to love her, to want her good for her. Actually, that's exactly what Jesus says. Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. So if that's your situation and you're a Christian, what is the greater righteousness to which God calls you? To begin to pray. He's, command, he's very specific. It's not, there's no arbitrary, I wonder what I, God wants me to do. He says, pray for her. So the command of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life, if this is you... Begin to pray for Sally. What? Pray for Sally? I like what uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. He's the German theologian who ended up getting killed by the Nazis. Bonhoeffer says, Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. Um, when you begin to pray for somebody, 
your heart begins to change toward them. Okay, so this is what we're talking about. We're, we're saying, you, in your prayer life, you'd say, okay, something like this. Lord, Sally. Ah! Oh, Lord, <laughs> my flesh wants, my flesh is angry. I feel threatened. My flesh wants, wants to attack. But Lord, you have called me to love my enemies. You've called me to pray for those who persecute me. So Lord, I pray for Sally. Sally wants, she, she wants to harm me. She wants to step on me to get ahead. But Lord, where does that come from? That comes from insecurity. That comes from a heart that, that doesn't know your love and, and doesn't feel safe because she, she has no idea that, that you're her heavenly father and that you can take care of her and that she can entrust herself to you. So, Lord, I pray for Sally. I pray that you would be merciful to her and by your Holy Spirit you would open her eyes to see her need for Jesus. Lord, bring her to repentance. And Lord, I pray that she would become a sister in Christ. And Lord, I, pr I pray that our, our relationship dynamic would change, that we would go from being perceived enemies to friends, that, that our relationship would actually become a testimony in our office to uh, your love and the, and the truth and power of the gospel. Lord, help me too. Respond to Sally with grace. Oh, Spirit of God, you're going to have to help me overcome the anger, overcome the, the insecurities in my own hearts, the feeling of being uh, threatened and in danger. Lord, help me to relate to Sally with your love. Spirit of God, give me love in the moment so that I relate to her in, in a way that is different. Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. And you see that? When, that's what Jesus calls us to. That's real life. And then our hearts begin to pray, and it probably we have to pray that over and over and over and over again. And God might or might, you know, we don't, God deals with Sally. And, and we leave it to the Lord to do what he's going to do. Um, but our hearts can change, and we're obedient to the command of the Lord. Why do we do this? Four, verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Remember the calling? Be, here, here's the greater righteousness. I'm not calling you to be better rule keepers like the scribes and the Pharisees. I'm calling you to have the heart of God. And the, you, I'm calling you to be, from the inside out, like your heavenly Father. What does your heavenly Father do? For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. God is kind and merciful and good to all people. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? <laughs> There's nothing extraordinary about being loving to that small little, you know, uh, circle that you've drawn, people who are, are you know, you, yours, do not even the tax collectors do the same? That, you know, loving people who love you, that doesn't put, make you any different from the tax collector. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? So Jesus is calling us to uh, 
something greater than. He's calling us to a, to a way of life that is different and better and higher than the world around us. So you just can't look to your neighbors and your coworkers and say, uh, that's the example I'm going to follow. That's the standard I'm going to follow. No, it's a, it's a much lower standard than Jesus calls us to. And so, you know, he's saying, look at, look at God. God who, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died. God is not willing that any should come to repentance, but, or any should, uh, that all should come to repentance. What is that scripture? I said that wrong. God is not willing that any should perish. There we go. But that all should come to repentance. The, God loves those who even now are his enemies. And the only thing that will all, uh, ever exclude you from God's circle of love is your own choice to reject Jesus, the Savior. So love's circle has no boundaries. Even my enemy is my neighbor. Wow. Then this final verse. 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, I'm calling you to a greater righteousness. There it is. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the calling on our lives. And before you get hung up on the word perfect, see the big picture. (laughs) Be like your heavenly Father. Model yourself after His character. Uh, Ask Him to so change your life that you begin to love the things he loves, hate the things he he hates, run to the things that he approves of, reject the things that he doesn't approve of. Right? That's what Jesus is calling us to, the inside-out kind of religion. Be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In the Old Testament, it was, be holy as I am holy. And, and I just don't get hung up on the, oh my, are we to be perfect? Well, yes. Can we be perfect this side of heaven? No. Should we strive toward greater perfection? And, or another way to put it is become more and more like Jesus? Absolutely. Can we grow in Christ-likeness? Absolutely. It's a whole process of sanctification helped by the Holy Spirit. It won't be finished until Christ returns and the kingdom of heaven comes in its fullness, and, and we look forward to that, right? Especially when, as our eyes are open to our own sin uh, and, and, and the reality of, of just how far we have left to go, and we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I'm tired of the sin, fighting the sin within. Um, but every time we step, become more like Jesus, practically, we step into greater abundant life, and life is sweeter and better and richer. All right, as the band comes up, why don't you just close your eyes and uh, we're going to just respond here. First question. Are you the kind of person who does not need to take an oath to feel compelled to do what you say? In the quietness of your own mind and heart, respond to that and ask the Holy Spirit to make what changes are necessary in your life to become that kind of person. Do that now.
Second question. Jesus calls us to never relate to others based on the principle of retribution. Is there someone in your life that you're trying to get back at? That you are relating to according to retribution? If so, confess that. Say, I, I give that up. Maybe that means you need to forgive. Maybe it needs to, you need to go and, um, and say, I release you. Will you obey the Lord? Finally, love's circle has no boundaries. Even my enemy is my neighbor. Is there someone in your life that you have labeled enemy outside the circle? Are you willing right now to put that person, uh, relabel that person a neighbor, put them back into the circle of care? Are you willing to begin praying for them? Until your heart changes. Lord Jesus, your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Apart from your word, we'd be stumbling around in the darkness trying to figure out where can true life be found. Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, taking the time to communicate to us um, these great truths. Spirit of God, help us to walk in them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.